Does your vision for business match what you see happening on a daily basis? Welcome to Jim White's Circle of Success, where Jim White brings it all together. For over 30 years, Jim White has worked with organizations and individuals worldwide to help develop and implement excellence. You'll get the inside story on how to create innovative leaders from one corner of your company to the other. Get everyone on your team contributing to the bottom line. Keep building revenue even when the economy and your customers have flatlined. And more. Jim White's Circle of Success Radio covers it all, from communication to contract negotiation, from personal fulfillment to revving up cash flow. It's not about theories. It's about showing you what works and how to make it work for you. And now, here's your host, Jim White. Thank you, and welcome to the show, everyone. This is uh, December the 17th, 2011. Can you believe the year is already gone? It is gone. We're coming to you live, as we do every Saturday at 10 a.m. Pacific time from Carmel, California. Our show today is going to be phenomenal. I've been looking forward to this interview for weeks as we've been uh, we've had it on the calendar, been coordinating. The topic today is an opportunity for social and public entrepreneurs. And our guest, Mr. David O'Keefe. David has 25 years. Man, it's, it's it's amazing how time just flies, right? 25 years creating and leading innovative organizations and programs and public policy initiatives. Now, I want you to really, really listen to the credentials of our guest today. And it's going to put it in perspective because what we're going to Drill down on my favorite word. All of my regulars, you you know my favorite word by now. We're going to drill down on what this social entrepreneurship is and what David means by social and public. Uh, And we're going to talk about because when he sent me an email and we were preparing for it, it he went through the it said the state and local and federal public deficits and struggling economies provide fertile environment. We're going to talk about that. David is the founder of Collaborative Opportunities International LLC and serves as senior advisor to the Naval Postgraduate School Center for Homeland Defense and Security, where he was CEO. He worked with Congress and the U.S. Department of Homeland Security to lead the center's development, and this is at the early early stages, uh, and they just celebrated their 10th anniversary here on 9-11 of this year. And he led the center's development and strategic growth, marketing and creation of programs that educate, educate the nation's government and business leaders on security issues while developing their skills to lead change. Okay, this is a big deal. Now, David also serves as senior advisor to the University of Connecticut's Global Training and Development Institute, where he conducts programs for leaders and entrepreneurs from around the world. The programs create global citizenry and equip leaders with the entrepreneurial skills to create socially innovative businesses. As we Drill down on the subject matter today. We're going to learn what it is, what this social entrepreneur is, what it is not, why should we care, does it create jobs, and is it good for the environment, right? So he works with uh, these entrepreneurs uh, to help solve problems in a world where the Economics and social issues and military conflicts are increasingly interconnected. Boy, and that is so true. David was also the founding director of the National Infrastructure Institute, Center for Infrastructure Expertise, which is dedicated to improving the management and protection of the United States infrastructure. Well, that is another big deal, right? 
Uh, Monday on my TV show, we're going to have uh, Dr. Ted Lewis, which is the author of the Box Sand Pile, and which is also executive director of these for the Center for Homeland Defense and Security at Naval Postgraduate School. And we're going to be talking about this infrastructure. And for you that follow the show regularly, you know I've been doing a series on infrastructure development in the United States. So once again, maybe we can ask David about this in the show as well. He was the general manager and director of business development for Control Solutions International, an innovative management consulting company that specializes in risk and operational assessments. Best practices, reviews, process improvement, and internal audits for Fortune 1000 companies. Now, during the mid-90s, David served in the director's Office of Policy and Regional Operations at the Federal Emergency Management Agency, commonly referred to as FEMA. He was responsible for developing agency strategic vision, improving organizational uh, efficiency and effectiveness, and coordinating with federal, state, and local government organizations and nonprofits to develop innovative policies to improve emergency operations. Well, as we know, uh, you know, our environment and actually uh, David lives in the east, east eastern part of the United States and uh, got hit pretty hard this year with some of the, uh, um, the hurricanes that came through, right? David also was a member of several national emergencies, excuse me, <clears throat> if I can talk today, pardon me, uh, national emergency response teams deployed to major disasters around the world. He worked in the U.S. Department of Treasury, Office of Technical Assistance, following the fall of the Soviet Union, where he developed and managed technical assistance programs to build open market, open market economies in Eastern Europe and the former Soviet Union. His public service also includes coordinating Middle East democracy programs, Palestinian and Israeli cooperation initiatives at the U.S. Agency for International Development. He served as a Presidential Management Fellow and a U.S. Peace Corps volunteer in the Philippines. David received his uh, B.A. in Political Science from Williams College. I didn't know that, David. Uh, Actually, they're a client of ours and love that place. And earned his M.A. in International Relations and Concentration in Economics from John Hopkins University. David, welcome to the show. What an impressive resume, and I wanted to make sure our listeners around the world really understood your background uh, to set the stage for this most important discussion we're going to have today. So welcome to the show. Well, thank you, Jim. I really have been looking forward to being on your show, but uh, I'll tell you, after that introduction, I'm feeling old. (laughs) I tell you. As I was reading, I said, how did you do all of this in 25 years, right? But it did it nice to sit back and uh, just kind of reflect on it. And uh, so, uh, I, as I said, I wanted to make sure uh, our listeners around the world really understood our guest today, who you are, and why you're so qualified to talk about this subject. So, social entrepreneur, what is it? What is it not, and why should we care? Three big questions, right, all right out of the chute here. So what is it? Tell us a little bit about what do you mean, and, uh, uh, and, and, and yeah, tell us about it. <laughs> all right, well, as you, well, yeah, as you know, traditionally, you know, anyone with a, a business background, we usually associate entrepreneurs with uh, um, startups in the business uh, world, um, small ones, and Hopefully, growing them into big ones, and uh, we usually associate them with, uh, you know, entrepreneurs being very highly energetic and creative and innovative and willing to, uh, you know, take risks and try new and different things. Mm-hmm. And social entrepreneurs are people who take business skills uh, and tools and put together a business model that is focused on addressing social issues. So you're getting a twofer there. Mm-hmm. Where you get hopefully a sustainable business model, but you're really you're addressing a social issue as opposed to making a more generic uh, good or service. 
And this has really taken hold in the last uh, 20 years because um, traditional nonprofit models, as you know, really rely on volunteerism, donations, contributions, things of that sort. Um, and they do tremendous work, and they're a really vital, important part of our community, especially in these uh, hard times that we're facing. But with the social entrepreneur, we're adding that piece of sustainability um, to be able to become self-sufficient, bring in some sort of an income, and not only uh, address the symptoms of some of the hardship that nonprofits uh, uh, in the past have tended to focus on, but to get at some of the root causes, to actually uh, address those causes and try and eliminate some of the problems that we have in, in our society. Um, a lot of it has uh, started out around the world in developing countries, but we're seeing really great, wonderful things now here, here in the United States that social entrepreneurs are doing. You know, this term is not new, is it? As you, as you said, entrepreneurs like it. But the social part first started. To, you know, my recollection is in the '60s and the early '70s when the uh, this concept started to move move forward. And today, I mean, you said it. The the economy. I mean, we're challenged and. Uh, uh, we have a lot of talking heads on the news that could talk about that <laughs> every day, 24-7. Uh, but we we do have a challenge here. So as we are preparing for 2012, uh, and I'm going to focus on the U.S. for the moment, and we're coming into a presidential election cycle, a lot of our listeners may say, why should I care about this topic? Is it going to create jobs? It's, it's address that one. What, what do you think? I mean, what? How's this? How could this social entrepreneur create jobs? Or is that is that the intent? No, I, I think it uh, it does create jobs. Um, and let me give you an example here. Sure. Um, yep. If for folks that are interested in learning more about this, Forbes magazine uh, in one of its latest issues came out and they profiled a number of, of social entrepreneurs. And one of my favorites um, that I've been following for years is a woman by the name of Mimi Silbert, and she founded Delancey Street. Um, yep. And she did that back in 1971. And she did it with $1,000. And what she did is she wanted to focus on a place where people who might have had a criminal past or a substance abuse problem, um, you know, people that were really having a tough time trying to, to make it in the world and were kind of falling back into the same old traps of whatever kind of addiction or vice that they might have. Mm -hmm. um, and so what she wanted to do was build a place. Now, as you know, again, there's, there's lots of wonderful, great community support networks out there for a lot mm -hmm. of these folks. Right. But she didn't want them just to go through those programs. She wanted to give them a, a leg up and a way of, of being able to take care of themselves. And she also didn't want to live off of government grants and, and donations of those thoughts. So she came up with this wonderful model at Delancey Street where folks will come in and they'll be at the center for several years. But she goes through an educational process with them. And she teaches them skills. And the... Uh, the organization itself runs several for-profit um, activities. They run a restaurant cafe. Uh, they have a moving company. I think they have a woodworking uh, carpentry type of program. So when people go through, they're not just getting treatment for whatever it is that uh, um, they're struggling with in life, but they're getting skills. And then when they leave there, they're now able to go out and actually get a job and turn their lives around. Well, in the process, when they're learning those skills, uh, they're, they're, they, this organization's making money. They now make $20 million a year um, through the, their different centers by being able to sell products and services that the folks that are there at the center um, re, re, um, that are receiving services are able to produce. So they have a self-sustaining mm -hmm. model here where they're able to not only do wonderful things to help folks, but they're able to actually make money, create jobs, and run businesses on the side. Mm-hmm. What a great example. It is so interesting. On my laptop, on the left-hand side, I had pulled up Delancey Street to ask you about it, and you lead off with it. <laughs> cool. <laughs> yeah. No, it, it's a good it, one. It is a good one. And I love the way you framed it and described it. So, 
She did not want to live off government or grants and to get into typical uh, pounding the payment for dollars all the time. So she basically put this thing together, become self-sufficient. The people that are getting the skills are actually people that are producing the products and service in order to make them profitable to help themselves to help others. That's it. You got it. Love it. Love it. Now, how and and, and why I'm going to take on your uh, piece of the email that you sent me a few days ago. Because you're talking about public and social innovators live for a crisis. What 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 did you mean by that? Because they know the difficult times provide opportunities. Talk a little bit more about that, if you will, please. Well, and I, I'll tell you, I've been very fortunate in that in my career, and you know, people ask me about my career, and I say, well, it's not a career. It, it's a, a list of opportunities that I was blessed to be kind of in the right place at the right time and be able to be involved in some really kind of cool things. And I think that's the thing right there is that it's that opportunity. And when we talk about entrepreneurial characteristics, as you know, people always talk about risk and people are in awe of people that take risks. But, you know, the truth is entrepreneurs really don't like risks. What they do is they try and minimize risks. Uh, The key to success and a good business plan is to minimize your risk of failure. (laughs) Not that you go out of your way to looking for risk. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. Absolutely. Uh, I, and I hear I've heard that for forty years. Say, boy, you're a risk taker. I said, huh? <laughs> I hope not. Yep. So um, the opportunities are really key in this. And my first kind of toe in the water with social entrepreneurship um, was back when I was a Peace Corps volunteer. Um, it, I was there for a little over two years in the Philippines. And after my first year, I really was concerned that after I left, a lot of things that I had been working on were going to kind of fall apart, and there was no sustainable model there in place. Um, At the time, the Philippines was going through a very difficult time. Um, Marcos had just been kicked out of the country. The New People's Communist Army was uh, very strong, and a lot of the uh, villages and towns I was working in, there was a strong presence there of the, the, the communist insurgency. And so when I would go in to these towns and I would work with them, I always felt like I was putting them at risk. Here I was, a very visible you know, white foreigner coming in, and um, I was more concerned with them figuring out a way to help themselves so that after I left, whatever we had been working on didn't kind of fall apart. And so there was an opportunity there in that there was strong need um, they were going through a difficult time, and I was able to leverage uh, my resources as a Peace Corps volunteer to help put together a program for them. Um, and what I did basically is I started my own Filipino Peace Corps. Um, I hired some uh, folks in their early 20s right out of college that were bright-eyed and, and really wanted to um, uh, make a change in their own country. And we trained them just the same way I had been trained as a Peace Corps volunteer. And we put them out into the villages. And they helped uh, these villages that were on the water. And it was actually an artificial reef project because a lot of the reefs had been destroyed. And they were able to get the communities organized, put in artificial reefs, bring back the fish, and put some controls around uh, the fishing so that it wasn't overfished again. But then they would take the proceeds from those fish, and they would start putting them into other cottage industries and businesses so they could diversify their models um, and their income sources. Um, And then, you know, when I left the Philippines and I was able to do some work in the – the Treasury Department, the Berlin Wall had come down. So there was this, this immediacy and this need um, to look to start building open market economies in Eastern Europe with the former Soviet Union. When I went over to FEMA and I was able to do the work there, um, it was in the years right after Hurricane uh, Andrew, and there was a debate on whether or not you know, FEMA really should exist and how it should be reorganized. So there was an, a, a need and an urgency to look at how to do things differently. And then, of course, the work I did with the Center for Homeland Defense and Security, it was the months right after uh, 9-11. So, again, there was an, an urgency. There was a need. And when you have those opportunities, people are willing to start looking at the world a little di- bit differently. Um, when there's limit, maybe it's a budget situation. 
they begin to realize they can't keep doing things the same way they've been always doing it. They can't afford it. Um, we have a lot of systems in this country that really haven't been modernized uh, probably since World War II, and they were put in place right. back then, and they made sense at that time. But we're living in a different world now. And so when I talked about the entrepreneurs living for that opportunity, it's because there's a crisis um, it could be within an organization and the organization's business, or it could be something that we're seeing now with uh, budget deficits at the local, state, federal level. So all of a sudden you have um, government officials and you have town councils willing to start looking at new ideas that in good times, you know, they're more worried about getting reelected and, you know, there's enough tax money in the coffers. So um, that's where I think, you know, the, the smart folks have ideas in their back pocket. And when everyone else is sort of panicking, that's the time when they come out with these ideas and these new approaches. And I think they, uh, they, they find a much more welcoming ear amongst their uh, customer base at that time. Hmm. You know, as, as I was listening to you, and, um, and, and as I said at the beginning of the show, you know, 2012, we're in this presidential election cycle, and and I have been pretty vocal over the recent, the past year, 18 months, if you will, over both houses and lack of leadership and decisions and all those kind of things that's, that's going on. Now, as you introduce this social entrepreneurship, how do we... Uh, get momentum, say, in, in the United States, that this is something that can create jobs and, and make a difference. I mean, what's, what would be the campaign? Because you described it beautifully for what you did in the Philippines, and there's other parts of the globe today that could probably use a similar approach, right, especially in the Middle East. Uh, so, I mean, there, there's so many opportunities here, uh, but, my God, it seemed like it's such a, you know, such a big problem, and I guess it's like I said, you take one bite at a time, right? Uh, so, uh, I mean, what do we need to do to get this thing on fire? I mean, what you know, one organization that falls in the social entrepreneur that most of the people realize is the TED organization, right? Right. Yeah, and then there's a, a number of good organizations out there that are are really pushing this. Um, the U.S. State Department has really adopted it. Um, you know, there's been a lot of evaluations and assessments done um, over the last four or five decades about the impact of U.S. development assistance money that has gone to developing countries and what difference has, has it made. And what they've really done the last few years is, is shifted um, at looking at social entrepreneurship and entrepreneurship and how that can be used to turn around some of the social economic um, challenges that these countries and communities face over, overseas. And that's uh, really at the heart of what I was have been working on at the University of Connecticut. Mm -hmm. um, and what that program does is it brings leaders over here from those other countries. And there's always at a core of those programs an opportunity for cross-cultural exchange where they get to learn more about the United States and our history and our culture to build really lasting good relationships. But then they'll have themes. And the theme that the University of Connecticut has been implementing is this social entrepreneurship. So we have these young leaders coming over here, and they're fine-tuning their business skills, and they're leaving with a framework and a checklist of tools so that they can go back and actually bring about change in their communities and doing it by uh, – putting together projects or the equivalent of nonprofits in their country to address the social issues, but in the process build an organization around it and, and create some jobs. And um, one of my, my favorite uh, examples of that is a, a gentleman by the first name was uh, Winston who I worked with in Kenya. And he has just a, a perfect model. He was very bothered by the lack of nutritious food in a lot of um, remote villages. People just couldn't afford a good, balanced um, diet for their kids, and he was seeing starvation. Mm -hmm. At the same time, there was a lot of small farmers who were being forced out of the marketplace by bigger, uh, by bigger uh, production companies. Mm -hmm. So what he did is he, he went to the small farmers and he said, okay, if you will grow these crops, I will buy them. I'm guaranteeing you a market mm -hmm. for them. Mm -hmm. 
So they said, all right, and they went ahead and he did that. Then he took them, and he was able to come up with a recipe, very nutritious, um, high-nutrient kind of uh, porridge mix that he was able to package into small packages at a very low price and then sell that in the villages at a very at a price that they could afford and the uh nutritious value was much higher than what the folks in these villages were able to have access to before so mm-hmm. now all of a sudden he's addressing a nutritious a nutrition and a food problem in these villages and he's solving a problem for these small farmers so they're getting a win-win, and he's in the middle as a businessman, and he's able to have a sustainable business now, and he's making money and being able to branch out now to neighboring countries, and a couple other European part, uh, folks have joined in and invested in his company. So he's now taking off and has a growing company, and at the same time solving two problems within his own country. Wow. I, I love these stories, Dave. I, I love I, I love these stories because they are real, and it goes to the real definition of being an entrepreneur, right? That's what they're doing. Yep. That's what they're learning. If you can share this information, you were talking about the leaders at the University of Connecticut. Uh, is there a particular region of the world that these leaders are coming from, and is it all private uh, individuals or public or a combination of both? Is there preponderance of the data there for is the uh, region that they're coming from? Well, the State Department offers this in different regions around the world. Um, the programs that we had been hosting at the University of Connecticut uh, there was a uh, Kenya was a, a targeted country, and mm-hmm. then um, there's a summer institute, which is a slightly different model. These are people in their younger um, younger part of their career, uh, right out of college, or maybe getting ready to, to graduate from college, that have been kind of identified as up and coming leaders in their countries. Um, we're going to be hosting 60 folks this summer. There are going to be approximately 20 coming, um, I think, from potentially um, from from Turkey. We're still waiting to hear about that. Um, but then North Africa and West and Sub-Saharan Africa. And a couple of those North African countries were Arab Spring countries. Uh, Tunisia, right. where the Arab Spring movement really started, and then Egypt, and then some countries, um, Sudan, the, the which uh, uh, was split into two countries last year, and um, a few other countries, and so these folks, um, it's energizing. They are just starting out their lives. They're really talented, really eager to learn, and really eager to go back and make a difference within their own their own country. Um, but to go back to your your uh, question, uh, the State Department offers these types of programs for for parts of uh, the world, uh, all parts. Um, this just happens to be the area that we've been asked to focus on. Mm-hmm. And there's other universities that uh, collaborate with the State Department on these type of programs. Or, they are. It's a competitive. Yeah. It's a competitive process, and you have to put together a proposal, um, and then grants are awarded, and the universities will be asked to host a certain um, number of countries from a certain region. Mm-hmm. 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 And the criteria from the State Department are they looking at? Uh, uh, Impoverished. I mean, what's your criteria to say, okay, I'm going to focus on a region? Um, well, I'll tell you, I was very impressed um, when we had uh, the folks that came from Kenya. The State Department mm-hmm. was very good at making sure there was good representation there. Mm-hmm. Um, because often you can run into this, and I saw this in uh, the Philippines, you can run into the same handful of folks sort of being uh, asked to be participate in the same programs over and over again, and you're not really building a, a good cadre of up-and-coming leaders and, and uh, around the country. So the State Department's very good at looking at a cross-section. Um, women in a lot of these countries face a lot more challenges than, than we see here in terms of bias and discrimination and trying to get a foothold as, as leaders in their communities. And so um, there's a lot of efforts to make sure that there's a good mixture of, of females and males and then from different parts of the country and from different backgrounds. They do a very good job at that. And what you just said, David, is significant, and I know this firsthand, uh as you were saying, as, as I was inter- introducing you, uh, I can't believe that Oh, and I'd say the same thing. I've been at this game for over 40 years, and in the 80s, I spent uh, 18 months 
which I worked for uh, Orville Freeman. Uh, you, you probably know his name very well, but for the people mm-hmm. that don't, Orville was uh, Secretary of Agriculture, you know, during the Kennedy administration, and and went on to President of Agricultural Council of America, and he started a nonprofit. Actually, it was funded by USAID called Joint Agricultural Consultative Corporation. And I worked with Orville and uh, trade missions. My area of responsibility was for Sri Lanka, Haiti, uh, and uh, Nigeria, and Thailand. And uh, working through the embassy, the State Departments, and the whole thing. And what do we do to create jobs, right? But what I saw in those days was the same old players that would show up every place we would go. <laughs> I'd like to go to a meeting, we got the same old people show up. Uh, but that's what ever done. So it's encouraging to hear that uh, we are really focusing on uh, getting the people who's got their lights on and we're given opportunity. Yep, nope, you're right, absolutely. You know, uh, we got to pay the bills, so we got to get a quick, uh, a quick break in here. We come back from the break. Uh, let's take a look, if if you will, uh, about some of the plans that you have for 2012 uh, along these uh, social entrepreneurs, and especially, uh, can we say anything about uh, Iraq, uh, those delicate parts of the world? Because we are leaving, and what, from your inside knowledge, if you will, if I can say that, being part of the, uh, what's the plan's, Going forward there, as it relates to some of these things we're talking about today, uh, uh, maybe we can address some of that when we come back from this quick break. This segment is brought to you by Circle of Success, a dynamic, year-long, intensive management and leadership development process designed to help individuals and organizations reach their goals quickly. A customized process addressing specific needs and identifying the critical opportunities particular to the individual and organization with results measured in increased revenue, increased net profits, and increased equity. The Circle of Success, inspiring excellence in people at jlwhiteinternational.com slash circles. Thank you. We're back with David O'Keefe. David, you are sharing wonderful information. Thank you for that. Thank you. Um, We're getting a lot of emails coming in to the switchboard, so I'm going to address, uh, read some of those, and we'll kind of take some Q&A a little bit from the switchboard, so we're much producers organizing some as we speak. So uh, while he's doing that, what's What's next for you specifically in all of your center of influences for 2012? How do you see this moving forward, this social entrepreneur thing? What uh, uh, any, any any major initiatives? Uh, and I realize this is a kind of a catch-all question, but you know, wh- what do you see on the horizon? What do you, that can really uh, get this? Um, uh, this movement, I'm going to use that word, this movement, uh, social entrepreneurship. Uh, so what, what's for 2012? Well, one of the things that I would like to do is I'm, I'm looking to reach out and, and partner with more organizations. And, and just as you put it, you know, how can we try and get more people involved in this? And I'm a, I'm a firm believer that investing in the next generation is, is really important. So um, I get a tremendous amount of satisfaction working with, with teenagers, folks in their 20s, um, and getting them thinking creatively, innovatively. And one of the things I like to, to, to try and squash right away, and I have two teenage boys. My, my daughter's uh, going to be 12 here. And so I'm I've always been focused, you know, around the world and around the country, and and now I'm looking at, you know, what are they going to do? Where are they going to go to college? What kind of jobs are they going to have available to them when they get out? But the thing I keep hearing people say to a lot of these young folks is, you know, what do you want to do? What kind of job are you going to get? And what I'd like to hear them say is, what kind of job do you want to create for yourself? 
Mm-hmm. And I think we trap ourselves mm-hmm. by thinking that you have to get a job and all that's available to you in life is what's in the wanted pages. Um, I think I agree. You know what I mean? You know where I'm going with this, don't you? <laughs> I do, and I love it. I love it. Keep going. And I'll tell you, my aha moment was about 14, 15 years ago where I was working for a, a small company and I all of a sudden found myself out of a job. Right. And I had two young kids and a third one on the way, and, and that's exactly what I started doing. I just look at, started looking for jobs that were being posted and was starting to get discouraged after a couple of months. And then all of a sudden, it dawned on me that, you know, instead of being on the receiving end of what jobs might be available, what if I thought about what I really wanted to do and what skills I had and reached out to, to groups and said, hey, you know, here I am, I can do this and this, would you be interested? And all of a sudden, I found myself with consulting uh, engagements and people starting to call me and say, I hear you're available. Would you be willing to help us on this project or this project? And it really took a, a mind, a shift of, of my mind process. And that's hard. It's very hard to do that. And certainly it's hard to do that when you get later on in life and you've got to pay the bills and you know kids and tuition and mortgages and, and everything else. Um, but I think there's more job security in being able to control your own destiny than going into work each day waiting to see whether or not you're going to be let go. And so that's something that I'm really I'm trying to communicate now when I talk with younger folks, the teenagers, folks in their 20s, is think about your career as opportunities. Think about things that you enjoy doing, that you're passionate about, and then how can you make a create, uh, create a job around that? Because if you do that and you enjoy it and you do good work, people are always going to be coming and knocking on your door asking, can you come and work with us? i tell you, what you just said, we need to pull that out and we need to post that to every middle school in the United States and around the world. I couldn't agree with you more, David. Couldn't agree with you more. And very well said. And... I see this when you mentioned some of the more seasoned folks, right? <laughs> I'll use that term. Uh, well, we have a lot of those folks in their 50s and their early 60s, uh, even today, that's finding themselves, man, I, you know, I can't retire. Um, and it, and they're also, we are at the age where nobody's going to hire us. So there's an opportunity there. Would you would you not agree that they can also? Uh- take their skills and uh, start selling their skills out there. Don't sit on the couch and be a victim. Absolutely. And you're, you're, the baby boomer generation has so much to offer. And to go and connect with groups in your community and be able to bring those business skills into a nonprofit setting and help them become self-sufficient because – you know, with economic challenges, the the donor money, the contributions start to dry up, and these very important nonprofits that really are you know our social net in our communities. But if you can bring those business skills into them and help them think about new ways to provide their services and generate generate revenue and create jobs, then you're going to become self-sustaining. So there's a lot of wonderful things on the internet for resources, and you know a lot of them kind of fall under that encore type of setting. Who, uh, with folks that uh, you know, they're they're still youthful, even though they're retired. They they want to get involved. They want to give back. Uh, they may not want to do it at 60, 70 hours a week, but there's lots of groups that would love to have them. You know, at 15, 20 hours a week. I I, I agree, and there's 76 million available in the United States alone. So great opportunities there, and uh, and and. And obviously fall into that uh, that category, and a lot of people ask me, "What do you?" I said, "I have no intention of stopping. I'm just getting started. What's up with you? You know?" Mm-hmm. So uh, it's uh, it's 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 good. I like prior to going on the air, uh, you were sharing uh, the basketball team that you were coaching. It kind of, and I can see your philosophy. It kind of goes back to that thing. And I think that what really grabbed me was, I think you, if I can uh, quote you. You said to the teams they got to self-organize. 
Well, that's giving them an opportunity to kind of lead their own destiny is what you were really saying about, you know, forcing people creating their own jobs, right? So you're doing that, and you just did an example of that in the coaching a nail-biter this morning in the basketball team, right? So it's the same thing. That's what you're teaching, right? It, it is, absolutely. And, um, you know, it, it's it's difficult because when you look at the 21st century skill sets, and there's lots of lists that always get posted out there, you know, what, yeah. what the top CEOs think, you know, their future employees need to have, and problem solving, teamwork, you know, creativity, innovation, they're always on that list. Mm-hmm. Yet we really are giving our kids little opportunity to do that. Their lives are becoming more and more structured. Um, you know, the kids that do well in, in school um, that, you know, are okay kind of, Sitting there in the classroom and, and going through a traditional school model, tend to get good grades. Um, it goes back to what we said about developing countries. You get the same handful of people often that get asked to do programs. Well, think about it. In right. most school settings, it's the top dozen or so kids that get identified and constantly asked to be on an honors track or go to a special summer program or uh, be part of a leadership program. <clears throat> and there's not a lot there for a lot of those other kids. And a lot of those other kids may not be in that top grouping because their energy level is so high and their ideas and creativity that they don't fit into a traditional educational model. And if you look at a lot of these entrepreneurs, successful ones, that we like to kind of put up on a pedestal, you know, you'll find out that they weren't exactly, you know, the best students or the Bill Gates and the Steve Jobs that dropped out of college uh, to pursue their dreams. I'm not encouraging people to drop out of school (laughs) at all. I am a big proponent of education. All I'm saying is, we need to give kids more of an opportunity to sort of be creative and innovative as opposed to always having adults there to structure everything for them and tell them how to do things. Uh, t- uh, I tell you, um, hey, you want to run for office? <laughs> <laughs> hey, it's, it's, you heard it here first. <laughs> uh, <laughs> <all right. laughs> I tell you, uh, if if you could see... Uh, I'm, I'm sitting here, and everybody's looking at me, and I'm just sitting here. Yeah, 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 yeah. I'm your biggest cheerleader here today. Uh, wow, this is cool. And, and I tell you what, we have 17 minutes left in this hour. Can you believe it? No, it's going by fast. It's it's amazing, and that's and that's what uh, normally happens. Now, um, let's talk about this. How? And, and I think public entrepreneurship, is that a different approach than the private social entrepreneurship, or is it the same? Uh, and and uh, maybe I'm not framing the question right, but I'm trying to, trying to understand. From a public sector, you, you, you've communicated how great the State Department's been doing on some of these programs. So – the different organizations and uh and and my my pet is uh we we have too many, too many egos and not enough decision making and critical thinking and leadership to you know belly up to the bar and get stuff done in uh in washington and and that sounds like a uh you know sound bite but it's not intended but I, it's 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 true in my my opinion so if you went to a city council and you're making a presentation and said, uh, uh, ladies and gentlemen, this is a thing that you should take a look at in your community. What would you tell them to do from a public entity standpoint in this social entrepreneurship? Well, you're absolutely right. It, it doesn't when you when you take the entrepreneur and you shift to the shift to the social entrepreneur, right? Um, you know, two things happen. One, it's an entrepreneur. It's much more about the bottom line. Social entrepreneur, you now have to look at kind of that social impact. But the two things that they still have in common is that you can create something. You don't right. have a governance structure that is going to hold you back. You can just go and you can just do it. I mean, in this country, as you know, you want to uh, start a, a business, you just hang out your shingle and you start. And as long as you pay your taxes, the government's you know okay letting you, you run with it. Um, right. When you shift now to the public entrepreneur, 
you have the, the government framework to, to work within. And it's a lot more challenging. And I'll tell you, my, my head is off. I've worked in and out of government my, my whole life. And to be a good, strong leader and to be innovative is much more difficult to do within the government structure. And the folks that do it, and they do it well, and some of the best leaders I've ever met have been public officials, you know, they, they aren't making more money because they're being creative and innovative. You know, there's that added bonus on the entrepreneurial and social entrepreneurial side. They're doing it because at the end of the day, they believe in the mission of their agency and organization, and they like to serve people. So what I'm, and you go back to 2012, this is, this is the area that I want to understand better. Okay. So I'm, I'm hoping to go back to school in the next year and learn more about this. I want to start interviewing some successful, innovative folks uh, in government and find out how did they take that idea that they had, and there's lots of great ideas, and how did they successfully implement it? What were the strategies they used? And just as you asked me, when they went to a city council and they had to get buy-off or they had to have the head of an agency or department approve this new and innovative way. Mm -hmm. How did they do that? What was their strategy? What worked? And even more importantly, what strategies didn't work? So when you go to business school and you're taking courses on a startup and looking at entrepreneurial traits, they have these documented characteristics. They have these, these uh, business plan templates for you to fall back on. They have an investor deck of you know a dozen slides that tell you in your 10-minute pitch to investors what they want to hear and how to structure your ideas. I would like to take those, change the vocabulary around, and have those tools available for public officials to help increase their chances of success and reduce the risk of failing so that we can start seeing more innovative ideas get implemented around the country. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You're familiar with this uh... – uh, Captain Wayne Porter, that this uh, national strategic narrative piece, you know, he's at the Naval Postgraduate School now. Are you familiar with that? Right. Yes. Yeah. Does that fall along that same category? Do you think of what uh, Wayne, uh, Captain Porter, and uh, his colleague, which retired now, uh, uh, Puck Melanick, and I, they were working, he was on uh, Chief of Staff uh, Mullins, and when they wrote this narrative, and uh, Actually, I got uh, Wayne on my TV show on January the 9th just to kind of uh, promote this thing. Does this fall in the same category of, of, of the public social entrepreneurship, or is it two different things? Well, no, I think it does, and and the, the, the public is – it's a very it, – you're not so much trying to create a, a new organization as you are trying to create new models, new ways of thinking of things. Um, but again, you know, it, it is a challenge. And it's interesting because one of the big barriers within the public realm, and we have this term bureaucracy or a bureaucrat, and it's taken on a real negative kind of connotation, but it used to be a, a positive connotation. Um, back at the turn of the century, the last century, in the early 1900s, if you remember, um, the reason why we moved towards these bureaucracies was because there was so much favoritism. There was so much corruption um, that you couldn't rely on, on the government. So the, the, the word bureaucrat, and it comes from its French roots, and the philosopher Max Weber did some great work on this um, back uh, in the 1800s. That was that was seen as the savior, where and, and that, that term bureaucrat is somebody who works, and actually I looked it up right before this, so it's, it's someone who works by fixed routine and applies rules and laws without exercising much judgment. And that was to take that corruption piece out of there so that you had a very efficient, well-running, reliable you know, local, state, federal government. But I think what we have found now is that that model has really started to outlive itself, and we do need judgment. And the people that really know the, the solutions, um, the innovations to make government more efficient, operate uh, at less cost, and be uh, more impactful in terms of services provided are the people in government itself. But we really don't 
allow them the leeway with the way that the uh, government systems are set up around the country. And so I think that's the, the next big innovation right there, and we're starting to see that right now. So mm-hmm. why a lot of people are, are pulling out their hair, hair and think there's gridlock in that, I actually think it's a very good dialogue that's going on around the country right now, and this goes back to that opportunity piece that you and I talked about earlier. Mm-hmm. Um, and usually, you know, the innovation starts at the lower level. So I think you're starting to see really good stuff in uh, local government and city government and, and going up to the state government where people are willing to try and do things uh, differently. They're trying to be a little less rigid and giving more responsibility to government officials to make decisions that uh, we've often not uh, given them a lot of leeway to do. So um, I'm optimistic. I'm uh I think this is an opportunity, but again, I think we talk about it. I think if we can do some case studies, if we can um, get the word out as you keep saying about some of these success stories, um, you know, nothing breeds success like success. So hopefully other government agencies and departments will start opening up and letting their people try new and different things. I, I agree, and, uh, and and you and I have uh, talked about this somewhat, but I've certainly been of, of recent months uh, with uh, your colleagues over at the uh, Center for Homeland Defense and Security, and uh, you know how much I, you know, love what I mean. You're a part of that. You're one of the founders and in the process of that uh, some nine, almost ten years ago. And my point, and, and I said to uh, Heather Isseron, uh, you know, which is director of communication, I said the problem. We need to start singing our praises more. People need to understand what government is doing, and government does get it right every now and then. And I think one of the right things is this Center for Homeland Defense and Security. But people don't know about it. So this is outreach that we're doing here by doing these interviews to say, the world, yeah, we're doing some pretty good stuff here. Yeah, we have some challenges, but there are some pretty bright folks and 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 we have this next generation coming up. You're talking about your your boys, and I have uh, my oldest is uh, 22, and uh, uh, and and I'm excited about the future. They are becoming critical thinkers, and they are thinking about how am I going to create a job versus I'm going to do the won't ad. So uh, I, I tell you, you you've been so on point this uh, this morning, which you are uh, most often of the time. So I really really appreciate it. Um, Homeland Defense and Security, uh, where do you see that going? Where do you, where do you see that um, going? Uh, you know, that's, that's a good question. We just had the, the 10th anniversary of, of 9-11, and I was just thinking as, as you were talking there, um, and I was thinking back to the early days when that concept of Homeland Security came up. And I'll tell you, our country is at its best when there's a crisis. Right. And I, one of the reasons why our center was so successful was because um, you know Congress and the White House and everyone realized, all right, we got a problem here. We got to do something and do it fast. And they gave us a lot of leeway to create something from scratch. And so we were able to bring in a lot of best practices from the private sector and other areas, and we weren't stuck at, at in an old model. And the centers continue to operate that way, very entrepreneurial, um, which is, uh, you know, kind of stands out from from other government organizations. Um, But I also was at a a meeting down in Washington the other day, and I was waiting my turn to get up and address it, the uh, audience. And I was listening to the numbers of uh, policies and strategies and things that have come out over the last 10 years, and they've all been necessary, and there's no question we are much safer today, I I believe, than we were 10 years ago. But it's matured a lot. It is now, you know, it is now a fixture. Um, But yet our threats continue to change. And um, Homeland Security is going to need to remain innovative and nimble 
because it, the threats are, are changing. They're morphing. Um, the organizations from overseas that uh, we face thre- threats from are changing. There's, uh, I think, are the dom- my biggest concern is the domestic threats, the right. copycat type of things. Uh, right. from, from folks that are right here um, on U.S. soil, and they're kind of on the fringes for whatever reason in their life, and they're just looking for, for some reason to uh, go and, and cause harm. And so I think Homeland Security is really became, becoming the new public safety. You know, law enforcement and other agencies have had to address some big challenges over the years. There's been organized crime. Um, there's been the, 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 the uh, challenge with drugs. There's been uh, um, gang warfare. Well, you know, now we have different terrorist threats, um, right. and I don't. It's not going to go away. And so that is now here to stay. We all have a role to play in that, and it's really the new public safety. Um, I think our, our kids uh, are growing up, and they probably won't remember a time when there wasn't a, a threat yes. of terrorism. It's it's interesting. Um, uh, conversation I was having uh, just a couple of nights ago and uh, uh, my stepson uh, Ryan he's a he's a junior in, in high school and he made an interesting point he says I cannot remember when there wasn't a crisis <laughs> you know for his economy or something so it's interesting uh, how they grew up and, and I agree with you with the you know the 16, 17, 18, the 20 year uh they're not going to remember it any different. Uh, I mean, this is the norm. Uh, is what we grew up doing drills in the uh, 50s to get under our desk in school, right? In the in the Cold right. War. Right. Sure. Yeah. Sure. Uh, yeah. 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 I tip. Uh, we have four minutes left today, and I wish we had four hours. Um, and maybe we need to figure that out. Uh, <laughs> we need to worry, but I do want to make a, a a point about this homeland defense and security. And uh, I was first introduced to you about four and a half years ago with, through uh, Heather, and I met her on an airplane. And she started talking about this thing, and the center. This thing is the center. And when I started learning about it, it was that entrepreneurial spirit that I said, "Wow, this is cool stuff." So over the time, we just get develop, and, and it is, as relationships are, it takes time, right, to build trust and do all the things we need to do. But there are so many lessons that this group, your group, and every, the Homeland Defense and Security can teach so many other agencies from the entrepreneurial standpoint. So I do think you have the model there. Well, and, and you've been talking to some wonderful folks. You know, certainly Heather Isfran. I think all of us. Uh, you know, it all comes back to, to Heather connecting the connecting us and yeah, building those relationships. Um, but uh, you've had a chance to talk to Glenn Woodbury, and you're going to talk to Ted Lewis on Monday. And they're wonderful folks, and they're doing a great job. And you know, we're really lucky that we have folks like this that are out there helping protect our country. I I, I, I agree. And uh, this last Saturday, uh, I interviewed. Uh, 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 the Coast Guard up in up in Alaska, and uh, I mean, just all these things that uh, we're we're bringing forth to people to understand uh, the different threats. So, what would you like to uh, uh, ask of our audience? How can they support your vision? How can they learn more about what you're doing? How can they stay in touch with what you're doing? Do you, is there any way to do that? If not, we'll make sure that we we do it to our website. Is uh, uh, any in, in in our part in time? Uh, what would you what would you like to? How how can people support you? Well, I think you know, and you touched on a number of them, Jim. Here, um, you know, opportunities. Uh, when you have trouble times, look in them as opportunities uh, to take your talents, do something different. We've got great groups in our society that are looking for people with different business backgrounds and skill sets to come and work with them, help show them how they can do things differently. Um, working with younger generations, the uh, 
folks, uh, whether you're a parent or you're on the uh, back end of your career and you want to come and give back, getting younger folks out there with the uh, the right mindset that they can make a difference, that they can take their interests and motivations and create their own jobs and new ways of doing things around this country. we got to break away from the last 50 years and really start re-engineering the systems that make this country work. And I think that's the big message right there. Don't be afraid of change. Change is okay. It's going to make us more secure and safer in the future. And everybody, every time they start doing that to me, my ear and the world can hear. I said, "Be quiet! You know, don't don't tell me. I know I got sixty seconds. I got it. I got it. I understand." I think what you just shared is sums it up, uh, David. I, I want to thank you for taking your Saturday uh, for sharing with us. And if I could ask you to uh, maybe just hang on the line uh, just briefly. Uh, we're going to wrap the show for today, and 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 I really appreciate it. This has been phenomenal, been phenomenal. Well, thank you, Jim, and and thank you for the good work you do getting these these wonderful stories out there. And uh, uh, thank all the listeners. Thank you very much. My pleasure, uh, ladies and gentlemen. We're going to take next Saturday off, so thank you so much, and we will talk to you soon. You've been listening to Jim White's Circle of Success Radio. Please visit our website, jlwhiteinternational.com. Join us next time as Jim White brings it all together on Jim White's Circle of Success Radio.